it's Matt. I want to tell you about a new show from Recode that I'm really excited about. It's called Reset, and its premise is that almost every story is on some level a tech story. Ariel Zuem Ross, the host, covers a bunch of issues that play a part in our day-to-day lives, like what's up with AI, how could new tech either improve our lives or cause terrible, terrible problems, or both. Uh, so today I'm sharing two episodes with you all that I think you'll be really interested in. The first episode, I surrender, it's about how Apple's App Store policies got mixed up with the Hong Kong protests in a way that's like actually pretty disturbing. Uh, the second takes a look back at the Google walkouts a year later uh, to really try to understand what's happening. Um, so I'm going to let Ariel take it from here. Uh, this is on I Surrender, Apple, and Hong Kong. Mary Hoy, you've been reporting on the months-long protests in Hong Kong for the news website Quartz. How does it feel to be on the ground when all of this is going on? It is a highly energetic, powerful, charged moment or a series of moments, long series of moments. It's not just a political movement. Um, It's very much a a movement made up of many, many different individuals who each have their own stories to tell. Because this protest movement has been largely leaderless, so much of it is organized online. Mary, you recently reported a story for Quartz about an app that's being used by pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Can you explain how the app works and, and how protesters are using it? As a protester, you might pull up your phone to figure out, okay, where should I go next? What's happening up front, um, just out of eye shot? And pull up this map where you will then see all sorts of symbols um, showcasing where police might be, where they might be moving in from. Places to avoid if you don't want to get hit by blue dyed water cannons. Where you might want to avoid if an orange flag has been raised, which means that rubber bullets might be fired imminently. From the very start, Apple wasn't sure what to do about hkmap.live. It's designed to help protesters and residents in Hong Kong locate police and demonstrations. And when it was initially submitted to the App Store, Apple rejected it. But then Apple changed its mind and approved it before finally banning it a few days later. That was two weeks ago now. Apple got slammed for the decision, notably by U.S. lawmakers, Democrat and Republican, who wrote CEO Tim Cook a letter expressing their concern. Now, we've been hearing a lot about how American businesses have been walking a fine line with China. The gaming company Activision Blizzard got caught up in this, and so did the NBA, even LeBron James. But in the case of Apple, the decision it makes now could alter how every government views its role in dictating what companies can and should do. I'm Ariel Zimros. This is Reset. Right now, people in Hong Kong are still using HK Map Live, except that instead of accessing it through an iPhone app, they're getting it through a browser or an Android app. Here's how it works. Mary Hoy again. I open up Chrome, I type in hongkongmap.live, and I will then see the page load with a map of Hong Kong. It will look very much like OpenStreetMap or uh, Google Maps, where you see the whole of Hong Kong. 
And let's say there's a protest going on just down the road from me in the neighborhood of Causeway Bay. And it's uh, often been kind of a flashpoint of protests. So I'll open the app up, zoom in to the neighborhood of Causeway Bay and see, okay, at this intersection, there are X number of protesters gathered here at this time. And then maybe a block away is a, a, a squad of police. And I would see kind of symbols uh, for the police. The, the symbol that the map uses is a, a dog emoji for the police um, and worker emojis for protesters. <laughs> really? Yes. Is there a significance behind using the, the dog emoji for police? Um, it's an insult, I suppose, uh, that protesters have adopted for the police. There was actually a vote taken earlier on asking uh, users on Telegram, this is the Telegram channel for Hong Kong Map Live, should we continue using the dog emoji for the police or should we use the police emoji for the police? And actually, the overwhelming response was to continue using the dog emoji for police. Okay, so it is, is, it is Hong Kong user approved dog emoji. It is. All right. So you are still currently using this app. Yes. But everybody seems kind of upset with Apple for having removed it from the App Store. Does this actually matter that Apple did that? I think it matters on uh, several different grounds. First of all, it is seen as an act of censorship, I suppose, on the part of Apple to take off this app. And it seems directly in response also to uh, pressure from China. So what happened really was that the app maker had applied to put this app on the Apple App Store. And it was uh, after a bit of back and forth, it was finally approved. But soon after, uh, Chinese state media came out with a commentary and said that Apple, um, by approving this app, had made a uh, unwise and reckless decision and that this app was, quote, poisonous. And so Apple felt the heat and I think then decided in response to this criticism from Chinese state media, uh, decided to ban the app. Right. Apple said that their reason for removing the app from the App Store was because it was being used to target police officers and, and sort of facilitated violent attacks. Do you think that's true? There is no evidence to prove that that has been the case at all. And in fact, not only is there no evidence, that's not at all how the app works. If Apple had taken the time to actually use the app and uh, look at how it actually works, um, they will realize that it's actually impossible and not within kind of the nature uh, of the app to be able to provide information on where exactly what a single individual officer or even a team of officers might be. Where do things stand with Apple now? I think to a lot of Hong Kongers, Apple's decision is just the latest in a string of what many see as foreign and mostly American companies kind of capitulation under Beijing China pressure to tow um, the Communist Party's ideological line. And to many Hong Kongers, I guess this shows that uh, many of these companies are putting profits ahead of values of freedom and democracy. And this isn't the only way that tech companies have sort of capitulated to the Chinese government. Um, and Apple has actually done this in a, in a number of ways. It, it took down the Taiwanese flag emoji from iPhone keyboards and removed your news organization's app from the Chinese app store. The, the Quartz News app right now is no longer available in China. Are you the reason that, that the Quartz News app was uh, removed from the Chinese app store? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because they didn't give an exact reason. But given the timing... I would think that 
at least my and my colleagues' uh, coverage of Hong Kong protests uh, likely factored into the decision. So how do you feel about that? It, I take it uh, partly as a compliment that our work, I suppose, uh, has reached into the Chinese state apparatus enough um, that they would rather it not be seen uh, by their own citizens. But of course, it, I, I also see it as a kind of egregious affront to, to press freedom, and I'd much rather that not happen at all. Mary Hoy is a reporter for Quartz. Mary, thank you so much for talking to me. I know it's late and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Free speech, democracy. Apple's actions undermine those values, but could it have done things any differently? That's after the break. Neelai Patel, you are the editor-in-chief of The Verge, and you've been covering Apple for years. What happened between Apple and China? A lot of things are going on between Apple and China. China is one of Apple's biggest markets. It's where Apple manufactures most of its products. And it's where Apple has, I think, the biggest conflict between its ideals and its values and the reality of an authoritarian government. So Apple taking out this app that protesters in Hong Kong were using to sort of coordinate their protests is obviously a concession to the government. The big problem is that Apple says it was its own decision. It didn't blame the Chinese government for the pressure. It said, we've looked at the app. uh, We've had reports. We see – we've been told that this app is being used by protesters to target the police, commit acts of violence. None of this is supported. There's no proof of this. Um, And they say, well, you know, the the Hong Kong authorities have have told us this is a problem, so we're just going with it. I think that is a mistake. It's a mistake for Apple to enter that sort of value judgment zone Mm -hmm. when everyone kind of knows the real truth, which is the Chinese government is pressuring Apple to remove this app. They could have just passed that buck. And the fact they didn't, that is like the center point of the conflict to me. Why would it have been more strategic for Apple to say, you know what, we're removing this app because China asked us? So Apple has an out. Every company has an out. You have to follow the law of the countries where you're doing business. It's true of the United States. Oftentimes, the United States wants to pass policies that Apple doesn't like. Uh, A a notable one is breaking encryption in iMessage. Right. If the United States government decides that encryption needs a backdoor, Apple has no choice but to comply. They have to comply with what the government says. In this case, they have to comply with what the Chinese government wants. Why would Apple blame its own sort of values judgment here, blaming the app and the way that it's used instead of blaming China? Why would it do that? I I think Apple has a strong interest in not irritating the Chinese government, especially in the context of this larger trade war, which doesn't seem to be reaching a conclusion where the majority of its products, the vast majority of its products might might see increased tariffs as they're imported in the United States, where the Chinese government does have the ability to sort of shape the Chinese economy, where they can see their sales in China fall. That is a critical market for Apple. Their financial performance every quarter is actually affected in in meaningful ways. So the Chinese government has just a lot of control over Apple's business, not to mention they actually manufacture their products there. So that's just a lot of exposure to the Chinese government. This is a small hit, I think, for Apple. If you look at their stock price, unaffected by all of this in a way that... Uh, Not affected at all. 
doesn't, I mean, going up in, on certain days. What is your judgment of how Apple is handling this? I think if Apple does want to be a values-driven company, it's going to have to come to a reckoning with China and the fact that it has this massive exposure to China and the fact that in the Chinese market, it has capitulated to demands it would never capitulate to in the American market. So iCloud servers in China are run by a Chinese firm with Chinese state investment potentially control. Unlike, you know, the web in China is closed down. Apple closes the App Store. They are in charge of what gets in and out of that store. So they removed the Quartz app from the App Store because it was illegal. Why right, is it illegal? the Quartz News app. The Quartz News app. Why was that app illegal? Because they were covering the protests in Hong Kong. That is a huge problem for Apple, especially now as they're extending their reach just from selling hardware, from selling an operating system to uh, news and entertainment. Apple runs Apple News. Is Apple News going to be censored if they decide to extend it to China? Well, that is a huge decision for them to make. Uh, there were reports that Apple TV Plus showrunners were asked to make sure that their shows didn't offend China. That is a huge decision for Apple to make. It is a decision that other Hollywood studios routinely make, mm -hmm. but it's a new set of decisions for Apple to make, especially with a CEO who says privacy is a fundamental human right, who has Martin Luther King quoted in his Twitter bio, right. who holds himself up as a paragon of values against competitors like Mark Zuckerberg. What would have been the alternative for Apple? What do you think the company should have done? I, I do think one answer is, look, we have to follow the laws of the countries where we do business. People in China love Apple. We will continue to fight for China to open up. We will continue to fight for the values we hold dear, but we have no choice but to comply with the law. Okay. You see that in the United States. It's a messaging issue. I think it's a messaging issue. It's also a risk issue. Hmm. That message carries a significant amount of risk, especially in the context of the trade war. So for Apple to say, we disagree with the Chinese government at this moment, we will comply because we are forced to, but we are going to push for them to change – is a message that could be retaliated against. It's a message that could affect their market in China. It's a message that strikes at sort of the nationalism inside of China, which is strong, which does exist. It's basically a message saying we're going to continue to try to export American values. That is the promise of globalization. That what's the trade we've sort of made, right? We're going to mm -hmm. we're going to open up the markets of the world. America is going to go out. We're going to export our values, our democracy, our free speech. I don't know if that trade has come to fruition. I think this is a, a moment of true reckoning about that trade, especially with the China speech issues. But that is a choice Apple could have made, and it is a choice they chose not to make. Does it make sense that China would sort of lose its mind over a random app like Hong Kong Map Live and the Quartz News app? These things seem kind of small. What does it tell you about China's state of mind right now? When the Internet was first sort of being established, there was a lot of sense that you couldn't stop it. Uh, I think Bill Clinton famously said to a conference, the Internet's going to come to China and they're going to try to stop it. It's going to be like nailing Jello to a wall. Mm. And everyone laughed. Everyone, everyone just assumed that you couldn't stop the Internet. What is abundantly true is that you can stop the Internet, that you can, in fact, filter what people see, that you can— You can shut it down entirely if you, you want to. You can shut it down entirely. You can—the Internet is a tool of extraordinary state control if it is used in that the apps and services that we're talking about here, they might seem like small potatoes, but they are fundamentally just symptoms of that larger control, mm. right? You, you either do it all the way or you don't do it at all, and China's chosen to do it at all the way, and that means the Quartz app has to go. And that is just how much control are you willing to accept? And in, in that country, it appears the answer is all of it. So why should people in the U.S. care about these apps getting removed in China and Hong Kong? 
the way I've been thinking about it uh, is a little out there, but go with me. Uh, I think about emission standards. So California has the strongest car emissions standards in the country. So every car maker who comes and wants to play in the United States market builds to California standards. Mm-hmm. They're the strictest. It is the most efficient choice to pick California's rules. Right, because otherwise you end up with cars with different car emission standards all over the country. That makes no sense. You just want to make one car, so you make it to California standards. So now in a globalized information economy, in a globalized market, the strictest speech standards for the largest market are Chinese. So of course all the companies are going to pick the most restrictive standard. It's going to work everywhere. If you meet the Chinese standards, of course you're going to meet the United States standards. Okay, that makes sense for car emissions. Does it make sense for our companies to constrain their speech? Does it make sense for tech companies in particular, which make tools for other people, to constrain the range of activities that those tools can help other people uh, achieve? That is a huge question. It is a philosophical question. It is a question that strikes right at the heart of the globalization debate. And so, yeah, it's the courts app. But do you want to be in a position where the next move for China is to say, hey, you... American startup that Chinese companies have invested in, we don't want you to distribute this news in America because they Mm. have that amount of leverage. These first instances, they seem small. They're not small to the people in China. They're not small to the protesters in Hong Kong. But they carry huge consequences in other arenas as, as this whole conversation moves forward. Does Apple need China? Why pay attention to the Chinese government at all? It has, it's making money all over the world, Right. So if you look at the so Apple absolutely needs China. There's there's no question there. It if you look at their financial performance and the growth of iPhone sales over the years, literally unlocking a new carrier in China was the spike in revenue, was the spike in in iPhone users year over year. They they ran out of countries to go into, they ran out of big Chinese mobile carriers and that growth plateaued. So that is a huge market. It's a lot of people for them to serve. They are in that market. I think very notably, Google and Facebook are not in that market. Microsoft, to a large extent, is not really in the Chinese market. Apple is there. They sell hardware. They sell the products. They sell the services. They can't just walk away from that. It would, it would meaningfully change their revenue. It would meaningfully change their, their product cycles. And they really do build the products there. And moving those supply chains, moving those factories, moving that engineering expertise anywhere else in the world, right now appears to be impossible. Could they do it over time? Maybe, but that is a multi-year phase out. So what you're really saying is you can walk away from China, but you will not make phones for several years. (laughs) Okay. So you need to phase that transition out. Okay. So what I'm getting from you is that tech companies like Apple, there are others as well, they need China. And that means that they often end up making decisions that seem sort of anti-democracy. Where is this all going? When you say tech companies, that's actually really, it's important to unpack that. Apple's in China. But Google and Facebook tried to go to China and they couldn't figure it out. They could not reconcile their values with the demands of the Chinese government. Google famously left. Right. The, the government wanted to censor the Google search engine there and, and they left. And then Google more recently has been trying to build a search engine for China. Very controversial, very secret. And their own employees said, no, stop this. And it, there are still rumors that they're trying to do it. But inside of Google, their employees do not want to build a censored search engine mm-hmm. for the Chinese government. Facebook... Mark Zuckerberg learned Mandarin. Like he, he was, he wanted to be in China, mm-hmm. and he, they, they couldn't do it, and they just abandoned the market. And they're very clear that they don't want to be there. Do they want to be there in the future? Maybe, 
But right now they're not there because their strategy won't allow them to be there. Apple's strategy requires them to be there. So there's a different level of exposure. When you talk about tech companies, you usually right. bundle them all together. There's a, there's a massive difference in Apple's level of exposure to Chinese market versus Google and Facebook. So with that in mind, with Apple being so vulnerable when it comes to the Chinese market, where do you think this is all going? I think right now for this incident, Apple rides it out. We are seeing that the, the sort of Chinese government affecting American companies story is not going away. I think the big danger for Apple is that that story continues to grow. It feeds into the nationalism in the United States and the nationalism in China. It feeds into the trade war narrative. And you end up at a place where Attorney General William Barr says, look, you're making concessions to the Chinese government. There's child porn and iMessage. Why won't you give me a backdoor to iMessage? That is a huge danger for Apple. That is, they're atta- attacking that and saying the government needs access to these phones. Why won't you unlock the phone for us when the, when the government comes calling? Apple has fought that fight. They have won that fight historically. They are correct to keep fighting that fight. That is a fight they could lose when the United States government gets to say, you make concessions to China. Nilay Patel is the editor-in-chief of The Verge. He also hosts The Vergecast, a podcast I listen to every week. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is Reset. I'm Ariel Dimros. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. And you can reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. If you haven't already, subscribe to Reset on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcasts, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. That was the first episode of Reset that we're running for you here today. Um, I, I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, you just like don't really think about how technology is changing the international environment uh, around this kind of stuff. The next episode is about Google walkouts and, you know, sort of efforts by employees at tech companies to change how these things work. Uh, to the question about uh, uh, trust, I think it's one of the most foundational things for the company. I take it seriously, listen to the feedback. Uh, try to understand when I feel uh, there's something which caused uh, uh, breaking of trust and see what we can do to improve. Google CEO Sundar Pichai says the company has been struggling with maintaining the trust of its employees. This is how he described the problem in leaked audio published by The Washington Post last week. I think we are genuinely uh, struggling with some issues, transparency at scale, how to do it, especially at a time when everything we do is, doesn't stay within the walls. Those comments come at an interesting time. On November 1st, it will have been exactly one year since the Google walkout, a protest against Google leadership that had a reported 20,000 employees walking off the job in offices around the world. I'm Ariel Dumras. Today on Reset, we're looking at the impact of the Google walkout. One year later. Time's up at Google. Time's up on sexual harassment. Time's up on a piece of power. I've been at Google for seven years. I've had both a sexual harassment and a sexual discrimination case. I've blocked out some memories of it, but I don't think anybody should have to do that anymore. I decided to coordinate this Dublin gathering as one of the many Google sites that are walking out today. It was huge. It was a big deal. I was there and you could feel this energy um, that I had never seen before in the tech industry. We demand structural change in the name of transparency, accountability. 
we're walking out in support of those who've been harassed anywhere in the workplace. An energy of sort of anger and frustration and a real rising of worker dissent. Shireen Ghaffari is a reporter for Recode. She covered the walkout from Google's headquarters in Mountain View a year ago. I asked her to explain how this all started. The Google walkout was about really the abuse of power and sexual harassment in the tech industry, particularly at Google, where at the time it had recently come out that there was a pattern of sexual misconduct at the company and that high-powered managers and executives were getting uh, protected and in some cases paid out to leave after there had been credible claims launched against them for sexually harassing and abusing their employees. And were these people people who were high up in the company? Yeah. So the most damning claim was probably about Andy Rubin. Um, He's the so-called founder of the Android uh, and was a very, very important person at the company. He was accused of coercing an employee into performing oral sex. The company actually found that claim to be credible. They launched an investigation, but they kept quiet about that and kind of pushed Ruben out, but thanked him publicly on his way out the door and paid him $90 million in an exit package. So when the New York Times revealed the circumstances around Ruben's exit and the massive payout, people were pissed. And you have 20,000 employees walking out of work at Google and offices around the world. Just to put this in perspective, 20,000 employees walking out on the job. Is that a lot? I mean, that's huge. Google's total employment is, I think, around 100,000. So 20 out of 100,000. I mean, that is huge for any workforce, but especially in tech, where historically workers do not speak out against management. Because overall, the perception is that tech workers historically are treated well. Engineers get all these crazy perks, especially at Google. You know, there's childcare on premises. There's free lunch. Um, there's amazing healthcare and time off. That's that's the perception of working at a top tech company like Google. So, yeah, workers don't usually walk out of work. So the Google walkout was about sexual harassment at the company. That's what it was about. Yes. At its core, it was about sexual harassment, but also about other issues like worker pay, diversity, having an employee voice on important projects. All these things sort of bubbled up and erupted at the time of the walkout. So there were organizers who sort of made this Google walkout happen. What were their demands? Most of the demands focused on making sure something like the Rubin situation did not happen again. So that means giving legal protections to employees who speak out against things like sexual harassment. And that means taking out these clauses that were in their contracts that uh, force them not to take their claims to court if they had an issue, but instead settle it privately and confidentially. So that demand was actually met. Um, That was probably the biggest Uh, direct kind of success of the Google walkout in terms of policy changes. But there were other deeper structural demands that are very much still being worked out at Google. And those have to do with, you know, having an an employee uh, representation on the board of directors. Those have to do with gender and diversity and pay equity, which is not just a problem at Google, but the entire tech industry. And remember, that only 33% of employees at Google were women last year, and that number drops to about 25% for leadership and technical positions. So it's been a year since the walkout. Do you think it was effective? 
I think the Google walkout was successful in cracking open deeper tensions, not just at Google, but the entire tech industry. And many of the demands have not been met. Uh, Many people are still actively pushing for those kinds of demands to be met. What happened to the people who initiated the walkout? So uh, Meredith Whitaker and Claire Stapleton, two of the organizers, they uh, publicly came out and months after the walkout said, hey, we feel that management's actually punishing us for our political activism. So you saw Claire uh, say that two months after the walkout, she was told she would be demoted and lose half of her direct reports. And Claire was a marketing manager at YouTube. You know, after she reported this to HR and she said, hey, I feel like I'm being retaliated against, they reversed the demotion, but she said that her managers started to ignore her, gave her work to other people, and she was told to go on medical leave even though she wasn't sick. Meredith, who was an AI researcher who led Google's open research, she said she was told that her role would be changed dramatically and to stop her notable research on AI ethics at the AI Now Institute, a research center that she co-founded at NYU and she still runs. So they, they, they both Meredith and Claire said they were retaliated against, came out with those claims, and then shortly after ended up quitting. Have those claims been verified? So Google says it investigated those retaliation claims in Meredith and Claire's cases and found no evidence of retaliation. But that's something that Meredith and Claire dispute. Are there any more examples like this of retaliation at Google? Yeah. I mean, in my reporting, I talk to Google employees all the time who face issues. Oftentimes, it's less well-known employees and maybe less scandalous um, circumstances. But these are people who say they've been subjected to things like everyday harassment on the job, having a manager who frequently makes inappropriate comments based on someone's gender or sexuality or race. And uh, they're forced to kind of put up with it, they say, because um, when they hear comments like, you're not getting promoted because you're such an emotional woman, and they report something like that, they say they're quietly pushed down the corporate ladder while the people who made those comments are kept in place or pushed up. So in your mind, is the significance of the Google walkout sort of a moment where employees finally felt comfortable calling this behavior out, right? This retaliation and the higher ups at Google ignoring retaliation. Is that what it is? Absolutely. And and it comes, you know, in the wake of the Me Too, Time's Up movement, and you're seeing people say, hey, I'm not going to set this, let this report about my manager sexually harassing me sit in a confidential HR file for the rest of my life. I'm going to come out with this and take a big risk potentially to my employment, uh, to my social standing with managers and say that it's not okay. Just last week, you broke a story about Google management trying to break up a meeting on unions and labor rights at its Zurich office. What happened? Yeah, so a group of Google employees at Zurich uh, for a while had been trying to host a discussion about uh, labor rights and unionization in their country. It wasn't a um, hey, we're going to vote on a union today kind of meeting. It was more, hey, here's we're going to invite a union rep to come talk about what unions are, what your rights are under the law, and um, you know, just explore this as a potential area for people to be more informed about. And just the the potential for that meeting to happen was enough to get management to actually come out and try to shut down that meeting. And so you saw management reply to an email invite and say, hey, actually, this talk is canceled. 
that actually had the effect of sort of further stirring up tension and really upsetting many employees who felt that management was trying to stifle speech uh, about something that's within their rights to know about. So uh, the Googlers went ahead and had the meeting anyway, (laughs) which I think shows uh, the kind of level of activism that employees are willing to have now, especially post walkout and say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and do this whether management likes it or not. It's interesting because it kind of sounds like this is a big change for Google away from a culture of open communication. What was the culture of Google like initially and what do you think caused the change? Yeah, so I would argue that Google still has a very open communication culture compared to many other companies in terms of there are thousands of internal mailing lists at Google where people regularly debate uh, company policies, they debate politics. Um, However, as you mentioned, Google has been trying to rein that in. And um, a few months ago, the company updated their company guidelines to try and restrict some of the speech. So they discourage employees from spending all day debating politics. And uh, they banned employees from insulting, demeaning, or humiliating fellow coworkers, business partners, or others. Uh, and that others category is pretty vague. And people have pushed back and said, well, would that in others or public figures, would that include if I say something about Donald Trump, per se? Right. And, um, we haven't really gotten a clear answer. I think that a lot of this is TBD. It depends on how Google enforces it. And so far, aside from some notable exceptions like that unionization meeting I mentioned, Google management uh, has still allowed a level of, of debate and discussion. And that's core to Google's culture. The reason why they can't get rid of that overnight is because, you know, Google was founded on this idea that the best and brightest and smartest are going to sit here in kind of like a late night, like college dorm room setting, sort of talk about philosophy and the best way to run a company. And Googlers are encouraged to have a level of collegiate debate. Uh, And that's part of their success. Because if you think about it, you have all these smart people sitting in a room. You don't want them all agreeing like sheep with each other. You want them coming up with the most zany and innovative technologies. But it's also becoming a huge liability as you see the company have these issues about their internal work culture and you see people weighing in on hot topics like Donald Trump or the Hong Kong protests. What do you think the larger impact of the Google walkout is, not just for Google, but for Silicon Valley as a whole and tech companies in the U.S.? It had this effect where it made other tech workers feel like, hey, we can criticize management. That's okay. You're starting to see tech workers find more of a voice in a way that they really didn't have publicly before. So we saw Amazon workers organize a climate strike and join the young workers who were leading a global protest on that. You see workers at companies like Microsoft come out and say, we don't want our AI being used for military purposes. Uh, You're seeing all kinds of pushes for worker solidarity in tech that's truly unprecedented. And I think the Google walkout has played a very, very big role in opening the door for that. Coming up after the break, I talked to a former Google employee who is still fighting for workers' voices to be heard. I am not disappointed in the workers. I am disappointed in the leadership, and I think there's a clear difference. Liz Fong-Jones is an engineer. She worked for Google for 11 years and left in early 2019. 
For years before the walkout, Liz was an advocate for inclusion and workers' rights at Google. She said that from 2010 to 2016, leadership seemed to appreciate her work as a liaison between frustrated workers and management. But over time, she noticed a shift in workplace culture. I think the changes to Google have been quite negative since the walkout. Negative? What do you mean? The company has indicated a greater willingness to crack down on labor organizing, to retaliate, um, as you may have seen with the cases of Claire Stapleton and Meredith Whittaker. Uh, both of them allege that they were pushed out of the company and retaliated against for their contributions to leading the Google walkout. And overall, Google's leadership seems to be cracking down on what they deem to be non-work discussions at work, uh, regardless of the fact that talking about sexual harassment is fundamentally a issue of our working conditions. Okay. So you mentioned Meredith Whitaker and Claire Stapleton and, and how they sort of said that, that Google retaliated against them. And they have said that Google has a culture of retaliation. Do you agree with that? I think that it very much depends upon the circumstance. And I think that that unevenness is definitely a large problem at Google. That even though there are individual working groups where retaliation would not be tolerated at all. I think that the failure of Google's leadership to lead by example and not retaliate and to deal with retaliation anywhere it happens with the company, right, I think that that is the broader problem. I know that I was going to experience relatively little retaliation because of my prominence. I worry much more about the people who are trying to report a allegation that someone was sexist to them or racist to them. When you mention retaliation, what exactly are you talking about? Can you give me a, a few examples? Sure. I think that some of the examples relate to when people attempt to say, like, hey, my boss made statements that were against pregnant people, or my boss made statements that were racist, that if you then go and report that to HR, it's entirely obvious who you are, right? There's no way to anonymize that. Um, and then when HR potentially disciplines the person or like gives them a very light slap on the wrist and says, hey, please don't do that again, right? Then what happens is that manager who has complained about might choose to sabotage you in return, right? Might choose to assign you a lower performance review or simply not advocate as hard for you as they otherwise might, right? And that has a long-term impact on your pay. It has a long-term impact on your career. And as Claire and Meredith experienced, it can actually result in you being asked to leave the company. Okay. With negative press about retaliation at Google, do you think the company is concerned about worker retention? I think that it's not a matter of the press. I think it's a matter of workers actually acting in solidarity or just individually quitting. I think that that's going to be the thing that actually causes Google to have to change the way it does business. Between that and lawsuits, right? Like, I, I don't see negative press as being the only factor here. I think that it's important to actually meaningfully affect the company's bottom line. How do you think your identity affected your interactions with Google employees and, and sort of um, the negative experiences that you had at Google? How much of that can you tie back to your identity? One of the things I quickly realized within my first year at Google was that I, as a LGBT plus person working at Google, was not going to be protected by the company. And that the company was going to place financial profit ahead of the interest of my human rights. That was made clear to me in November of 2008 when Prop 8 came up for election in California, which was a ban on gay marriage. And Google was happy to take the money of the pro-Prop 8 campaign and was willing to run ads that incited f hatred and fear of, of gay and lesbian and transgender 
Californians. And I think that seeing the company do that and seeing the company ignore protests over it was a moment that caused me to decide to speak up the next time something similar happened. Did Google employees ever say anything about you being LGBTQ plus? Did, did that ever come up in, in negative ways? It did not happen per se on work-sanctioned media. However, what happened was certain individuals who had access to Google's internal message boards chose to leak conversations that I had about diversity, about LGBT plus rights, about women's rights, um, chose to leak those conversations, including my name and photo, to publications and uh, I'm not even sure I'd dignify them by calling them publications, but leaked, leaked those words to places where harassment was coordinated, where people posted threats, incitements to violence. Those were places where I definitely was attacked directly on the basis of my identity. Okay, so because some Google employees leaked conversations that you had had internally, you were then harassed online. That is correct. So how do you feel about that now, looking back? Does it still bother you? It absolutely bothers me, but there is very little that I can do about it today. Um, honestly, the best thing that I can do is stop it from happening to someone else. I think for, for a lot of people, when they think of Google, they think of it as a nice place to work, right? There are a ton of amenities. The, there's, there's great food courts. There are beautiful campus, right? What would you say to people who view Google in that way and who maybe think that you might be complaining for nothing? I think that if I'm complaining for nothing, the question is, why did I walk away from a $800,000 per year job? Like, I, I had legitimate concerns both about my safety at work as well as about the ethics of what I was working on. And I think that regardless of how many amenities someone is receiving, right, I think that they still have a right to protection from sexual harassment, right? No amount of free food in the micro kitchens is going to make up for being sexually harassed or being retaliated against um, or having to work alongside someone who has been a sexual assaulter. And I think that Google can be a fine place to work if you keep your head down. The issue is that you shouldn't have to keep your head down. I just think that it's important for people to have equality of opportunity, and that means freedom from sexual harassment and discrimination. A year after the walkout, what do you hope people will think about when they think about the walkout? What do you hope people will take away from it? I think the message is that employees do have power when they stand together, but that Employee organizing is not a one-time effort. This is an ongoing movement that has many different leaders who are getting practice with this. And you cannot possibly try to fire your way out of this problem. You need to really look at what's going on and try to address the grievances of employees. When you started out at Google, it sounds like you were, you know, a believer in, in their values. What were their, their values at that time in your mind? And what do you think those values are now today for that company? I think one of the projects I was most proud to work on at Google was Google Books. Um, I worked on helping make sure that the books that were locked away in libraries that were not accessible to people who were blind or people who were dyslexic, that we could scan those books and make them available to people who had disabilities so that they could read those books that they couldn't otherwise access, right? That people would search through books that were in libraries that they couldn't actually pay to get into, right? Like the Harvard Library, right? And I think that that principle of making the world's information universally accessible and useful 
I think that that's really powerful. And I think that employees hold up that spirit. Employees hold up that spirit of don't be evil. And I think that the company's work depends upon the labor of employees. And that's something that we can choose to withhold. Liz Fong-Jones, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Since Liz Fong-Jones left Google, the company made a few changes intended to support employees involved in investigations, including adding a support person program and the release of a step-by-step guide to investigations. I reached out to Google. In an email, Eileen Naughton, the VP of People Operations, said, quote, reporting misconduct takes courage, adding that over the past year, We have simplified how employees can raise concerns and provided more transparency into the investigations process at Google. We work to be extremely transparent about how we handle complaints and the action we take. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zimros. We'll be back on Sunday with an episode about the shoes that are changing the sport of running. Before you jump to your next podcast, I want to tell you about a very exciting episode of Recode Decode with Kara Swisher that's dropping tomorrow, Friday, November 1st. Kara sat down for an interview with Edward Snowden. They discussed everything from the normalization of wiretapping in American culture to his views on Mark Zuckerberg and the maximization of technological power. Facebook's internal purpose, whether they state it publicly or not, is to compile Uh, perfect records of private lives to the maximum extent of their capability, and then exploit that uh, for their own corporate enrichment um, and and damn the consequences. Uh, This is actually precisely the same uh, as what the NSA does. Um, Google does, uh, has a very similar model, uh, and they go, oh, we're connecting people. They go, oh, we're organizing data. But uh, we can see privately what they're doing, right? You open your weather app, and it's communicating with Facebook because someone baked the Facebook APK into or SDK into it. Um, and you didn't even realize that. You don't see it. It's intentionally kept invisible to you. Uh, and yet it's collecting material on you. There's a ton to explore. And you know Kara. She doesn't hold back. So I can guarantee that you won't want to miss this. If you're not subscribed to Recode Decode, find it now in your favorite podcast app. As for Reset... You can reach our team by emailing us at reset at vox.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod on Spotify. Later, nerds. So that was Reset from Recode and the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like the show, subscribe for free to get new episodes every week. Just search for Reset in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.